Welcome to Trained, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm Ryan Flaherty, the Senior Director of Performance at Nike. On every episode, I call up the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep. All the ways to train your body and mind. Today, I'm chatting with a scholar who's opened a window into the big business motives and methods that shape today's internet, and how they affect our search for understanding. There are some dimensions of knowledge and experience that don't come through a result in an advertising platform. That's just not a way to become educated and to participate in your community and your society and to build expertise and knowledge. Think about what it's like to live now where everyone thinks that everything can be known and it can be known quickly and we don't take the time to nuance and think through whether the thing that we're finding is even accurate or true. That's Dr. Sophia Noble, an associate professor of information studies at UCLA and the author of Algorithms of Oppression on how our digital landscape has changed the ways we learn and how we separate the truth from advertising. So today, we're not talking about macros, muscle mass, recovery, or mindfulness. Instead, we're looking at our primary source of information for all these topics, digging deep on algorithmic bias, our disappearing attention spans, and ways we can get back to connecting with each other in real life. Because let's face it, the internet has become the lens through which we see the world, and ourselves. According to Dr. Noble, that lens is warped. It can elevate the voices of big business and quiet the voices of the real human beings next door. It can serve you up some snake oil advice and even trick you into supporting hate just by tempting you with the spectacle. And we've all become so acclimated that we've forgotten how to think on our own. In other words, the internet has been training us. It's not a trainer we asked for, but it's a trainer we all have to contend with. What Sophia can teach us is how to recognize that training, how to see what big tech and advertising media want from us, and how to hold them accountable for what we need from them. Hey, Sophia, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Like many people, I recently watched The Social Dilemma, and it led me down this rabbit hole about how big tech companies use algorithms to make us spend time on their platforms. And so I know this is going to be a little bit of a different conversation for our audience, but I think they'll realize in hearing from you that these things have an impact on all of us because we're on the internet all of the time. So I think it's a really important conversation for our audience to hear. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here. I feel crazy because there's going to be tons of background noise. There's like hammering going on in the background. I'm sure the dog is going to bark. Thanks for having me and all my noise here with you. (laughs) No worries. It's all good. So how did you get into this? How did you find yourself becoming a professor of internet studies? I started my first career, my first 15 years were in corporate America, working mostly in a variety of different kinds of corporate social responsibility and public relations, and then marketing and advertising positions. I've been following Nike and your industry for a long time back in my corporate days because so many companies were really interested in trying to figure out how to be both socially responsible and deal with the myriad issues that companies face. And of course, that includes all the ways in which they engage with consumers. And when I was in that field, working so closely with marketers and media companies as I was leaving the industry and heading back to graduate school to get a PhD, it was really the rise of internet marketing that was becoming a huge Mm -hmm. dimension of 
advertising. We were shifting millions of dollars in our advertising budgets from traditional kind of out-of-home television, radio, to internet advertising and marketing. And I was so surprised at how many people were thinking of internet platforms, especially search engines, as kind of like, you know, public libraries or public information portals. When I had just left the industry and we were trying to figure out how to game these advertising platforms (laughs) to make companies really visible and to make our clients show up on the first page of search results. So that disconnect was really fascinating to me. And then when I started to look at ethnic and kind of urban and racial marketing groups that I had, you know, worked with for 15 years, like I said, and I was kind of looking at those groups through the lens of what search engines, how they're representing those groups. Then I started to realize like, wow, there's actually a lot at stake here and I need to study this much more closely. What were some of those first experiences that showed you the biases and motives in big tech and specifically around marketing? The landmark study that I did that first raised these issues was what happens when you look for girls of color, different identities in search. So started with the simple search on the keywords, Black girls, and then Latina girls, Asian girls. And it was stunning how when you did those searches, I mean, this is back um, 10 years ago when I really started organizing these studies. The whole first page of search was almost exclusively pornography or hypersexualized content. And I thought, this is something we've got to think about. What will it mean when Black girls or Latina girls or Asian girls are looking for themselves in search or things that other girls like them are doing, and they're confronted with pornography as their primary representation? This is a devastating thought that children would experience themselves or their own identities in these ways. But, you know, of course, at a more fundamental level, all of these porn sites and hypersexualized sites were actually women, grown women. So, you know, there was just like this disconnect in the way that women get coded or encoded as girls. Right. And then there's no space for girls and children. And so I thought this was really important to talk about. And I remember in the early days when I first started writing about this and trying to get media outlets, for example, to cover a story about the research, you know, they would just say like, well, everybody knows that when you search for girls, you get porn. And that was so normalized that it's like, well, duh. And people would also say things like, well, that's just what everybody's looking for when they look for girls. Everybody's looking for porn. And I was like, I promise you girls are not looking for porn (laughs) when they're looking for themselves. You know, so it's like this idea of who the everybody was, who the imagined user might be, and why did that kind of point of view get to pervade the first page of search. And that really is what led to a whole 10 years of writing and studying in this area. Right. The reason that when you search the pornography websites pop up first, they're paying more money than other sites to be surfaced in in search optimization. That's right. Which... It's frightening because that means that whoever has the most money can basically make you know anything they want show up. And, and look, I think all of us inherently know that this is happening, right? With our attention being monetized the way it is, what does that mean and how does it work, if you don't mind helping us understand it better? For the most part, these platforms, be it social media platforms, search engines, recommendation engines, YouTube, Yelp, they are advertising platforms. 
their goal is to find ways to engage us so that we are available and primed for advertising. Now, this is a similar model to television, quite frankly, which a lot of people who maybe don't understand the origin story of television, don't realize that the point of television was to sell consumer goods to the public, washing machines, refrigerators, dishwashers. And the programming was designed to compel us to stick around and watch the ads. Wow. This has been one of the crises, in fact, facing network television with the advent of streaming and other kinds of services. It's like, how are we going to serve up the ads? So if you think about it in that way, then capturing our attention, of course, is a very important dimension of making sure we are available to see the ads. One of the challenges in something like a search engine is that most people cannot tell the difference between paid advertising and search results. Mm. And they really don't understand that the search results come up in relationship to making sure that you also see certain ads. Now, this is where things like keyword planning tools, the back end of how search engines are optimized to those who have the most money, right, or the most technical skills, those who are willing to say, um, participate in the live auction that's going on 24 by seven, where people are trying to outbid or companies, industries are outbidding each other to make sure their results make it to the top of the pile. That logic is really important because people think that, you know, in the case of Google would call their organic search results have no relationship to the advertising. But that's just not true. I mean, the whole point of optimizing your ads is to make sure it shows up when people are searching for certain things. So when you're searching for sneakers, Nike wants to make sure it shows up on the first Mm -hmm. page somewhere. You know, my work has been about making it clear that those with the most money those with the most technical skill, and of course, groups that are power users are able to really control the landscape. And one of the reasons why that's so important to me as a person who studies information and knowledge in society is that, first of all, most people don't go past the first page when they're looking for something. Yeah. Second, you know, Google and search engines really work like authority sites in our society now, where people are much more likely to believe what they find on the first page of Google than they are a real expert, somebody with a PhD in an area, right? Yeah, And so that's important. And thirdly, if you don't have the money and you don't have the technical skills and you don't have the population numbers, how will you ever be able to control the way you're represented in these spaces? And that to me is actually a more tragic dimension of what it means to hand over so much power over the way that people are represented and thought about and characterized in these advertising platforms. And I think those things are really worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think bringing it back a little bit to our audience too in health and wellness, I mean, there's so many people I hear from all the time that say, you know, I'm I'm struggling with so much information, so much noise on how do I eat? What's the right nutrition for me? I don't think we realize is slowly but surely over time, we're conditioned in a way to start to believe that, oh, well, you know, this must be good for me because it's when I search, you know, healthy diets are one of the first things to pop up. And that's not always the truth. And like you mentioned, unless you're coming from a big company or paying the dollars to get up there, your information is not going to be found. And people who are willing to pay more will go ahead of you, whether or not that's valid information or not. Absolutely. And so what do you think, based on our attention being monetized, what are the effects on us, the users, in the context of daily internet use? 
Well, one of the effects is that we have become acculturated to thinking that there are answers to our questions that can be found in 0.03 seconds. Mm. Now, stay with me here. One of the things my students say at UCLA is that they could never write a paper without Google. That's like their go-to. Many of them have never been in the university library. And so I say to them, okay, well, if you're so trusting, why get an education? Why get a degree from UCLA? Why not just go through the rest of your life Googling? And then they stop Mm. and they're like, okay, hold on. And I'm like, right, because see, there are some dimensions of knowledge and experience that don't come through a result in an advertising platform. That's just not a way to become educated and to participate in your community and your society and to build expertise and knowledge. And so, you know, they kind of understand it at that level, but think about what it's like to live now where Everyone thinks that everything can be known and it can be known quickly. And we don't take the time to nuance and think through whether the thing that we're finding is even accurate or true. Right. So to your point about the incredible amounts of not only just disinformation, but just pure advertising from who knows where in the world. We're starting to understand that in the realm of politics. But, you know, I think about this in the realm of health and wellness Think about how many people in the United States don't have health care and have to turn to mm-hmm. something like a search engine to self-diagnose, to figure out how they're going to heal themselves, support themselves when they don't have proper medical or health care. I mean, these things are very serious and real when you think about the lack of integrity in these kinds of platforms and how much we're increasingly forced to be reliant upon them. And these things to me are, again, shifting and shaping rather than people thinking about like, what would it mean for us to live in a country where everybody has access to affordable health care? We think, wow, you know, everybody should just be able to Google it. I mean, that is a ludicrous proposition, but those are the kinds of things that are actually put right. up in relationship to each other. And I think that really shapes and reshapes our expectations of what it means to have healthy societies. Couldn't agree more. I know. It's just scary. It's scary to, to know that people who don't have access to healthcare don't have access to a doctor who are doing it themselves or finding these sites and going down these rabbit holes, following information that they think is quality that isn't and potentially can have long-term and if not life-threatening effects on them and their long-term health. I think that in this moment of COVID-19, we're seeing the fragility of our healthcare system, our education systems. What we're seeing on the research side is that the industry that's making money hand over fist during this time of you know 40 million Americans unemployed, people without health care, people who are already chronically compromised in terms of having chronic health conditions that make them more susceptible to the virus, people who are mm-hmm. low income, who don't have health care, who are also more likely to disproportionately experience coronavirus, and these are Black and Latino communities, working poor communities, right? What we see is that the industries that are making the most money are actually the tech industries. Now, one of the things that I try to help policymakers, for example, understand is that when you don't tax these big tech companies, you don't have resources in the system that 
go toward the kinds of things that are really important if you want to have healthy communities and healthy societies. The reason why we educate people, we've had previously longstanding commitments to affordable education, is because when people are healthier, when people are better educated, they're less likely to be sick. They're less likely to miss work. They're more likely to have opportunity, right? So what we're seeing Mm -hmm. is this moment showing us how weakened our democratic institutions are, our systems of care, healthcare included are. And when you see all of these large corporations, particularly in the tech sector, offshore their profits and they don't pay taxes, well, that actually has a huge impact on all of us. So they kind of create the conditions in a certain way by not paying their fair share into the systems that we're all supporting And that weakens us, it weakens our society. And I think that, you know, these are things that we should care about too. When we come back, Sophia walks us through how predictive analytics influence our choices, the ways that social stresses fuel social media, and how to enjoy the internet with awareness. If you're enjoying this episode of Trained, here's some good news. You'll find more wellness expertise every day on Nike.com, the Nike app, the Nike Run Club app, and the Nike Training Club app. You can learn more about movement, mindset, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, and you can get started on a workout as soon as you finish this episode. What are some of the ways through design and algorithm that big tech manipulates our behavior? Well, I think that there are certain kinds of acculturating practices where we become reliant upon different kinds of platforms for different needs, whether it's news needs, information or knowledge needs, finding resources. So in that sense, the sector has kind of displaced other types of expertise. And this is where I think of people that you might have previously trusted a bit more like librarians at the public library or doctors, scientists, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I think the sector has kind of shaped our behavior around instant gratification and a sense that everything can be known quickly and that they can be trusted, that they are vetting and curating and sorting and making sense of what's most important for us. And that, of course, erodes our own critical thinking and our own slower information gathering practices where we might Mm -hmm. take on the advice of many people or read many different kinds of resources or look to a book instead of just a website, quite frankly. So I think that's shaped our behavior a lot. I think that some of the worries about tech kind of over-determining our immediate behavior is less of a concern to me. Although I will say Instagram has got me pegged. You know, it really does know how to sell some of the (laughs) products. I don't know how they do it. But that dimension is probably less dangerous. I don't think there's a mind control dimension of these technologies. What I do think is more the the thing to worry about is that so much information is being collected about us, our moods, our likes, the things that we're doing online. And those are really contributing to the making of predictive analytics. And those predictive kinds of AI are designed to track us And track us Mm -hmm. into opportunities or preclude us from opportunities. And where you see this, for example, is the way that predictive analytics are used to sort some people into lower insurance premiums and some people into higher ones. Screen you in or out of a job 
through software, screen you in or out of a mortgage or a small business loan, aggregate you or take information about you from one moment in time and have that data last a long time in predicting who you are into the future. Those kinds of shifts and changes to our behavior are going to be really, really important because those kinds of predictive analytics are quite frankly going to overdetermine what your life can be like or not and really reduce our agency. And that's the thing to watch. Yeah, no doubt. Is there anything that we can do about that to protect ourselves? I would hate to say the only option is to get off the social media platforms or the internet, but is that the only option or are there other things that we can do to combat them collecting so much about us? This is one of the challenges about some of the dialogue that's happening around social media and the internet, which is like this kind of all or none, you're on the internet or you're off you have a smartphone or you don't, and that that's the level of intervention or solution. I just don't think that's viable when to keep a job, you have to have a phone in your pocket or you know, <laughs> right. you're know you forced to use email or you're forced into gig work that is driven by a tech platform, right? You're an essential worker and you have to deliver food using, you know, Postmates or Grubhub or something. So, you know, you're definitely not able to just solve that at an individual level. I think we have to become super educated as voters. People who are attuned to these conversations should be running for office, especially at the local level. We certainly are seeing communities in cities all across the country organize around banning things like facial recognition. That, to me, is a place where we can get active, we can get engaged, we can watch, we can participate, and we need to be responding to these things with public policy. We can also just make these things less cool. I mean, think about all the things that were cool at some other stage that are so not cool now. Those of us who are interested in like culture industries and, you know, brands, you know, maybe rather than the rush to collect every type of biometric data you can get on a person, you know, maybe it's like ways to keep that information not in aggregate, but turn that back just to people. I mean, I'd like to know what my heart rate is and how much REM sleep I'm getting at night through my watch, but I don't really want that aggregated and then potentially tied to all my other digital behavior and then sold to hundreds of different companies, right? I mean, where can we take the affordances of what might be helpful and interesting and not let it go to the places where it can be really consequential? When I first started out training athletes in around 2005, there wasn't this massive draw to the phone when we first started working together, you know, in workout training groups that would go for two to four hours long. Sometimes, you know, they may check their text message here and there or whatever, but they're focused, locked in, working hard. And then slowly but surely phones became a bigger part of the workout. Wearables started to become a bigger part of the workout. All of a sudden the notifications from social media started to ping to the point where a few years ago, I finally just told everybody, we're going to train together. Phones are off while we're here. I think it's just really shifted how relationships are, how focused people can be, how much that distracts you. And so when I talk to people who are struggling, you know, when I go to the gym, I just don't feel like I get a great workout. It's like, well, is your phone on you? Are you looking at your phone? Is your workout rest all of a sudden 15 minutes long and you realize, oh my gosh, I just watched six videos. I try to give my athletes some tools to be able to deal with turn off notifications, schedule going on Instagram for 20 minutes a day. But are there any tools, any suggestions, any recommendations you've seen help people or friends of yours in their, I don't want to say addiction to social media, but their, you know, increased use of it? 
I have at Parallel experiences teaching students who, over the last 10 years, it's increasingly difficult for them to read long-form content. Younger students find it harder and harder. If I assign, let's say, a book chapter, 20 pages, they struggle. Under normal circumstances, I might assign four or five book chapters that you should read for this week for us to be able to have a discussion. More and more, I see they're looking for two-page, shorter, journalistic kinds of accounts. Now, it's not just the digital dimensions of it. I think it is also that people are under significantly more stress to be in certain places. So I don't have very many students who don't have to work a job or two to be able to go to college. You have to look at these things kind of structurally and systemically too. To me, what I see with the like need for the social media is like the escapism from these other dimensions of pressure that are happening in yeah. people's lives that are around like, how do I afford to live? Especially if you live in a city. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I don't know how undergrad students who are living on financial aid or grad students who are living on $20,000 a year can live in LA. It's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So when you think about all of the different vulnerabilities, then the role of something like a dopamine hit actually starts to make a lot more sense. This is where I look at the mental health of my students too. They're so, so anxious about their futures. They're worried about climate change. And then that really primes them for just like, let me just get a hit of support or acknowledgement mm -hmm. or validation. I'd like to think of these things in kind of these systems because I don't think it's really just like, hey, you, you're so insecure that you need to get a like. I just don't think that's the full story. You know what I mean? I think there's more to it. It's more complex. I couldn't agree more. It's all like you said, there's so many variables to it all playing a part. You talked about what we need to try to figure out is how do we make not being on social media cool again. I was talking to my niece uh, over Thanksgiving holiday. My niece was trying to get me to help her fight my sister to get her TikTok because she wants to be on TikTok. And we were having this conversation about, you know, my sister wants to hold out and she was trying to get me to help her in the argument. But she was mentioning how she's missing out on so many of these social things that all of her friends talk about at school. They're all in the know about all these new dances, all these new things that they're seeing on TikTok. But because she's not on it, she has no idea what they're talking about. She's not involved in the conversation and she feels like she's missing out socially in some way. And it got me thinking like, Dang, in what ways are people affected by not being on I these know. platforms? And that's the thing that really is crazy. It is crazy. And you were saying that I was thinking, yeah, I can remember being about that age and like wanting to have cable so I could have MTV. Do you know what I mean? Like right. having MTV yeah. really made you cool. In the and, know. yeah. Yeah. And you like knew all the videos and like what was that? The fashion. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's actually not the same, unfortunately, now, because, of course, when you get into a social media environment, it's surveying you as much as you're watching it. And it's also not a very controlled environment. I mean, you really have no idea what's going to get served up to not just your kids, but your parents, too. I mean, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, look at all of the people in their 60s and 70s who... All the research shows, I mean, they're the most susceptible to things like sharing disinformation. So it's like the kids and their grandparents. Yeah, right. What are we doing? 
And I think this is part of what's at stake when we think about these being the only spaces and places for popular culture to happen. When I ask my students, how do you guys find out what the hot band is in LA? They're just like blank. You know what I mean? They're like, (laughs) what? And I'm like, please tell me you go and listen to live music. You live in LA. And they're just looking at me like, please don't ask me another question about this. (laughs) So it's like, oh, okay. So I go, okay, well, how do you find out about new music? Like, what's what's up? And they're like, you know, whatever Apple or Spotify recommends to them. And then I'm just like head to desk. So, you know, think about how many dimensions of popular culture are really mediated now by these platforms. One of the things I keep hoping for as an outcome of this lockdown that we've been in is that people will really crave the local, local music, local art, having a barbecue, you know, sharing, talking, laughing, being together, right? And that we will not just live vicariously through what fun and what art and culture other people are making on the internet. Watching other people have a good life is not it. I mean, I hear like your sister, she's in, my son does the same thing to me. He's like, you know, I could really do X, Y, or Z, but you and dad won't give me a SIM card. You know, like the (laughs) SIM card is like, just like his whole life in elementary school is hanging on whether we give him a SIM card because, you know, he gets to use like an old phone, like an iPod and he's just humiliated by it. (laughs) And he's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, why don't you guys just get out and ride some bikes? Let me just add, some of this is of our own making because now when kids are out on their block, people call the cops on them if they don't see a parent or an adult. Mm. I'm Black. My family is Black. You know, I'm worried all the time about what might Mm. go down if my kid's outside and some neighbor thinks he doesn't belong in our neighborhood. So we also, people, their lives are at stake or their feelings of anxiety about being out in the world and the hostilities are also real. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, kids are so locked down and they're just looking for a way to belong. And, you know, I I guess I don't begrudge that so much either. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's complicated. It really is. You're leading me to the next part I really want to touch on is just the incentivization of hate on the internet. How do you see the algorithms of some of the searches and advertising incentivizing hate? Well, there's no doubt that the most egregious and titillating kinds of content are the most profitable for Mm. big tech companies because their measure and their marker of value is engagement. Now, engagement Mm -hmm. can be with like horrible, atrocious things, or it can be with amazing things. But see, people are more provoked and interested, even if they don't agree with inflammatory or hateful things, they might share it to say like, did you see this horrible thing? So the more we engage with the content that is hateful, the propaganda, the racist disinformation, that kind of thing the more likely it's going to be algorithmically boosted. I think this is where a lot of us are very concerned about how social media and other kinds of search engine systems are really able to make money. I mean, when I say money, I'm talking about printing trillions of dollars off of the backs of the most vulnerable people who are targeted by that kind of content or who are the subjects or the objects of that kind of content. Mm. And I think this is 
something that we have to really think of as a matter of kind of in a civil rights and human rights framework. I mean, this is where you see around the world calls for genocide against sexual minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities. It can go viral very, very fast. And as it goes viral, those companies make a lot of money. So we have to de-incentivize their Mm. ability to profit from hate. And of course, the big campaign that the NAACP and Color of Change and many, many companies got behind the Stop Hate for Profit campaign this year that we saw earlier in 2020 was directly about this, that companies also don't want to see their brands and the ads for their products placed alongside hate. All of a sudden, you have new trust and safety teams in these companies who are just trying to make sure that their sneaker ad doesn't show up next to some like white supremacist rally on YouTube. Mm -hmm. This is very complex because unfortunately, hateful content, like I said, it's the type that tends to go viral. It spreads really fast and it gets amplified algorithmically to enhance the engagement. Yeah, And this is a place where I think that we'll see more regulation or at least more accountability We're talking at this scale of global platforms. Facebook alone, I think, what, they've got 80 billion. This is happening so fast. And now most of these companies have hired tens of thousands of content moderators, right? This is where my colleague at UCLA, Professor Sarah Roberts, who's a world's expert in commercial content moderation, she and I co-direct the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry Mm. And her area of expertise is really these people who screen the content and try to stop the spread of things that would be like a, a violation of the terms of service or the community guidelines in these platforms. But I will tell you from having witnessed firsthand the adjudication of content by some of these platforms, the people who are often having to make the decisions about whether something is harmful or not might be thousands of miles away from the country of origin where that content is getting uptake. So if you have Mm. someone in the Philippines, for example, or in Spain, who is trying to figure out whether this is like a uniquely racist meme or other type of propaganda, that's very hard to do. I mean, it's already hard enough for Americans born in in the United States to understand and recognize racism or to contend with it. Can you imagine yeah. if you are also not living in this country and are not in the nuance? So that's part of the, the reason also why you have so much of this happening is that the people who are, you know, hired to screen content are overwhelmed. I think the last time I saw an executive from YouTube on Good Morning America a couple of years ago, he said that YouTube was dealing with about 400 hours per minute, 24 by 7 of content being uploaded to YouTube. 400 hours per minute. You can't hire enough people to go through and look at that, right? And you would be stunned to see the kinds of things that people try to upload to the internet. The people who do this kind of work are psychologically, emotionally, neurologically traumatized. It is incomprehensible, the kind of harm that those workers face. And of course, much of that content also unfortunately makes it through and makes it into places that we also see. Scary stuff. It is. It is. A lot of media out there actually puts the onus on us, the public, to reduce our screen time. They're kind of like, hey, then stop watching. 
Whose responsibility is it really? Well, listen, I mean, that's a little bit like saying, if you don't like the air quality, you should stop breathing or you should, you're actually responsible for testing the air quality in your home and intervening. Yeah. I mean, that's just unfair as a model. Right. We regulate around air quality, water quality, and we fail, in fact, in many places. I mean, talk to the people in Flint, Michigan today about the way in which regulation has failed them. We have to contend with, of course, that regulation is unevenly applied. It typically benefits the wealthy and the resourced, and it fails poor people, um, mostly people of color. So I think we have Mm -hmm. to say, if you weaken the systems that are supposed to be here, and when I think about this, of course, I'm an information scientist. So if you weaken the information environment, the educational environment, and what you leave in the gap is social media and search and internet advertising companies, and then you tell the public, it's your bad, you should know better. I mean, that is just untenable. We really have to look in the mirror at ourselves and say, is this the kind of society we want to live in? I want to remind us that we have choices. I'm such a sports junkie. We're like a super sports family. And part of the reason is because Mm -hmm. sports are about shared goals, shared responsibility, teams, um, participation. And I think that that's a vehicle that reminds us we're stronger together and everything isn't just about the individual performance and the onus on the individual. Thank you for that. I want to end on this last question because I think it's important. One of the things that inspired me about the conversation I had with my niece last week was in part of her argument for TikTok was how her generation, that's how they share thoughts and ideas on activism. Like, There's a lot of really amazing things that are also happening on social media and on the internet right now that I'm all for. So what aspects of online or on social media today, as far as maybe activism or culture community inspires you? Well, it's so interesting. I mean, of course, I'm inspired by seeing Black Lives Matter and feminist movements, racial and economic justice movements organized online. I think being able to participate in those conversations and to gather when it was safe to gather, I mean, those things are incredibly important. And I think that people are using these platforms in ways to educate and raise consciousness I always try to think in terms of consequences and affordances rather than good versus bad, because I think that it's, again, a complex landscape. At the same time, I will tell you that I know many people who don't exercise their First Amendment rights, who feel contained and suppressed around expressing their points of view, their politics, because they're afraid they won't get a job. They're afraid that those things will follow them. They're worried about that. Those are some of the consequences, is that as much as there's kind of like civil and racial and economic justice organizing, there's also a lot of organizing of hate and white supremacy. And it's really easy for those ideas to get normalized through these platforms. And I think those are things we just have to be in dialogue. We have to know and care about what our kids are seeing. I mean, one of the things I do with my son is he likes to see all the dances. And so I'll watch with him. 
And then if something comes, I'm like, whoa, hey, that's like too adult. That's not for you. <laughs> then we laugh and we kind of unpack it and I'm able to really assess with him. So I try to make it so that some of those things that, again, where we feel as parents and aunts and uncles and caregivers like where that we can't win, we can also join in and do the framing work. You know, one of the things that's so exciting about being a scholar is that I kind of ruin a lot of great things for my students because I'm trying to teach them how to think critically. But also I say, listen, it's your framing. It's so much better to know and be able to see when like racist content is coming at you and you can be like, oh, I see what's happening there. Then to have it come at you and you Mm. can't make sense of it or you think it might be legitimate. So teaching that kind of critical thinking also happens by engaging with it, unfortunately, when it comes across our path. And I think that's a really powerful way to teach the values that we want to see around civil and human rights in this world. I love that. That's a great way to end it. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. I've never had a conversation like this before, at least not untrained. And I learned a ton from Sophia today. One thing that stuck with me, as someone who's always struggling to hold my athlete's attention and my own, is that our addiction to screen time isn't just about getting those likes or staying up to date on doom scrolling. It's also a symptom of larger issues. Psychological, physiological, and economic stress in the rest of our lives can make that dopamine hit look pretty irresistible. The internet isn't just a destination then, it's also an escape. And recognizing that is really important. My takeaway? To make changes in our online lives, we'll have to make changes in our offline lives. And to do that, we'll have to stand up and make changes in our world. That's a New Year's resolution I can get behind. Next week, we'll be getting back to the game, so to speak. I'll be catching up with soccer superstar Alex Morgan about her new team, her new daughter, and her same-as-ever sense of unstoppable purpose. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, Help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to hear covered, email me at trained at nike.com and I'll see what I can do. This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide, it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions. They shouldn't be taken as fact.